Well, good morning. Thankful to have everyone uh, join us this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at a parable out of Matthew 18 as we continue our series on parables. But I'm going to tell you about an experience I had in a Bible class in a different city and in a different state. The teacher got up in front of the class, it was a Sunday night, and said our topic for tonight is about forgiveness. And as soon as he introduced the topic, my eyes quickly darted across the room to a man who had previously expressed how difficult forgiveness was for him. He was now in his late 70s, early 80s, but had talked about a time when he was 18 years old, his brother went to the grocery store. His brother was 16 years old, but his brother never came back. He entered the store, and shortly after his brother entered the store, an armed robber entered the store. Things quickly went south, and his younger 16-year-old brother was murdered. And that was something now, 60 years later, I knew that he still carried that burden. It was a struggle that he continued to have. And so as soon as the teacher said, tonight our class is going to be about forgiveness, I looked over at him. And it was just a few sentences even into the class, and you could start to see his jaw tighten, his, his hands clench, his face turning redder. The, the veins in his neck looked like they were made of helium as they started to, to kind of grow and expand. And it wasn't but two minutes into class, he got up and he walked out and he never came back. And as you think about that experience and you think about that story, as you introduce a topic like forgiveness, we recognize that all of us come into this topic with this history, with things for which we have either learned to forgive or we have not yet learned to forgive, and it seems challenging. In fact, there's an author uh, named Garrett Kaiser, and he says of forgiveness that, that one of the things that makes him really, really mad is when he hears about injustices done to people, but one of the things that makes him even angrier is the mere suggestion that any person who has suffered such a thing ought to forgive the person who inflicted it. And I think if we're honest, we can identify with why that might be so infuriating. And as we talk about forgiveness coming out of Matthew 18 and the parable of the unforgiving servant, you know something already, which is you know that we're going to talk about forgiveness. But all the cards aren't in your hands alone. I know something about you too. What I do know is that there are some of you, as soon as you hear the topic of forgiveness, you say, I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to sit there uh, pleasantly and delightfully in church, and I'm going to listen to everything Craig has to say, but no matter what he says, there's absolutely no way I'm going to forgive that person. Others of you say, well, I would like to have a private opportunity to sit down with you, Craig, and explain all the things that have happened so that you too can be convinced that forgiveness really is a terrible idea. And others of you, your minds start racing, you know, the what-ifs, the what-about situations and scenarios. Now, our parable this morning is not going to answer all the questions you have about forgiveness. If you think you're going to leave this morning and say, Phew, I'm glad it's such an easy choice now, I know clearly the pathway it doesn't do that. But our passage is going to talk primarily about forgiveness in terms of lifestyle, becoming a forgiving person. We're going to learn about the personal transformative power of forgiveness But we're also going to learn that forgiveness comes with it certain expectations for how we respond and how we act. Of course, our parable finds itself in the 18th chapter of Matthew, which is a chapter directed specifically to Jesus' disciples. What we find in Matthew 18 is Jesus teaching about what kingdom living looks like. So it's in that context we have this uh, larger topic that is addressed. 
In chapter uh, 15 through 18, Jesus teaches about what to do when there is a wrongdoing or a sin within the brotherhood. And there's kind of these, these three steps that Jesus introduced. The first is you confront the sin. And, and in the confrontation, there is a desire or a longing that there might be some confession on the part of the other person, that they will realize and recognize what has been done. And then if that happens, there can be restoration, there can be reconciliation, there can be forgiveness. And, and then Jesus gives this process that we inten- intensify those three steps all in an effort to get a person to come to a place where they would be restored to the community of God. And Peter is listening, and Peter, as he often wants to do, he wants to get a few brownie points. And so he asks Jesus the question, well, how many times should I forgive someone? And, and, and I think clearly we see, as Peter says, we're going to find ourselves playing that third step in the process, the reconciliation, the redemption, the forgiveness. So, so how many times am I going to do this? And and Peter doesn't come out of this with a blank slate. There is a lot of uh, things he has likely been taught about how many times. Uh, If you read the rabbis of the day over and over again, they're going to talk about the number three. It's going to come out of the book of Amos. But I'll give you just one uh, rabbi and his statement in this way. The, The rabbi says, if a sinner sins two or three times, they forgive him. But on the fourth, they do not forgive him. And Peter has listened to the Sermon on the Mount already, right? And so he knows that Jesus takes, you have heard that it was said, and he ups the ante a little bit. And so Peter is going to double plus one. And so he's probably feeling pretty good about himself. He's taken the standard answer. He's already made it much bigger, which is what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. And he assumes that Jesus is going to stand back and say, mm, Peter, impressive stuff that you've got going on here. But instead, just like he did in the Sermon on the Mount, remember Jesus said, you've heard that it was said. So Peter provides the you've heard that it was said piece of the equation. And then Jesus will then tell us, but I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven times. Jesus gives the context and he corrects Peter. I think that statement, that number comes out of Genesis 4.24 If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 77-fold. It's the exact same in the Septuagint, the the Greek reading of the Hebrews, the same number that's mentioned there. See, Lamech was the kind of a person that his life orientation was about revenge. He did not buy into this notion of an eye for an eye. His notion was more like an amputee for a fingernail. I mean, if you break my fingernail, I'm going to amputate you. Here's something he said just a few verses earlier. Uh, in verse 23, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So he says, whatever you do to me, I'm going to get vengeance even more. My action and my conduct towards you is going to be such that I'm going to extract more than you have ever done against me. And therefore, Lamech's lifestyle is oriented on this notion of I am going to avenge any wrongs done to me in this 77 times or the 70 times seven fold manner. And what Jesus is saying is the life of a Christian in comparison to the life of Lamech is not oriented towards seeking vengeance, but it's oriented towards what? Being a people of forgiveness. Just as he was bent on vengeance, we as Christians need to equally be bent on being a people who are forgiving. And so then Jesus will introduce us to a parable in an effort to further illustrate the notion of forgiveness. It's called the unforgiving slave. It's broken up into four separate parts or four separate acts, and so we're going to just slowly move through each of these four sections. So act one, 
Matthew 18, 23 through 27. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all of his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him, forgave the debt. I think to do justice to this parable, the first thing we need to do is we need to take it out of all of its church context and connotation. So we're not going to be in a church. We're not using words like faith. We're not using symbols like a cross. We need to set it in a business context because that's what Jesus did. So maybe this will help us to get a kind of a feel or a sense for it. Um, I want you to imagine that we're looking on a Tuesday morning at a pharmaceutical company that's got its annual corporate meeting. And this pharmaceutical company has its own interesting little pay scale that they use. What they do is they divvy up amongst their salespersons certain regions to which they focus on. But what the employees do is they bid for, they contract out how much they're going to pay to have the right to sell to that area. So the CEO says, who wants the Billings Clinic account? Says last year the Billings Clinic account net the company $100,000 per month. And so one salesperson says, I will give you $105,000 per month. They're assuming they're going to be able to sell more supplies, more contract than that, but they get to keep the difference. And so they sign a loan guaranteeing the company $100,000 per month. So we fast forward a year later. A year later, we're not on the Tuesday morning of the annual corporate meeting, but now we're on the Monday morning when accounts are settled. So the CEO calls in that salesperson who said, I will do it for uh, $100,000 a month. And the CEO says, you now owe me your $1.2 million that you've agreed to. And the person says, I don't have it. What do you do? What the person does is they ask for an extension, Just give me a little bit more time, and I'm sure I can pay it off. What does the CEO do? If he asks his executive team, what do you think they're going to say? Ask the board of directors, what are they going to say? And the CEO then says, you know what? I'm going to release you. I'm going to release your debt, and there is no payment that is needed on this. That's a pretty extravagant thing, because notice what the question was. The request was, give me more time. And the answer goes above and beyond and says, I'm going to completely forgive the debt. Now, I hope that illustration helps a little bit, but I do need to let you know that the illustration is grossly inaccurate in one way. I way underestimated the value of the amount owed. Our text tells us that it is 10,000 talents. Uh, One of the things that Josephus says in his writings is that Herod the Great, when he would collect taxes from his area, he would collect 900 talents every year in taxes. We're talking about an amount that is 10 times the salary of the king is what this man owes. In fact, if you take the talent and you were to convert it over into a denarii, one talent is about 6,000 denarii. So that means 10,000 talents is gonna be 60 million denarii, which means we're gonna find out in Matthew 20, verse two, that Jesus will tell us the average day laborer makes how much money? One denarii a day, which means for an average day laborer, the amount of money we're talking about, it would take them 164,000 years to work that long to pay off this amount of debt. This is a huge, exorbitant amount of money. And how do you feel 
If the best you can do is ask for more time and somebody says, I forgive that debt. Elated, thankful, humbled, joyful. I mean, there's all these emotions and I'm guessing somewhere along the way there's probably some tears that have been shed when you're forgiven of that kind of debt. And thus ends act one and then we move to act two. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he refused and he went on and threw him into prison until he would repay the debt. If we look now between Acts 1 and Acts 2, what we find is a juxtaposition. That's where you take two things that are different, you put them side by side to highlight how different they are. Because if you take Act 1 out of this parable, Act 2 is something probably very normal, something probably very expected. You might, after reading Act 2, if you had not read Act 1, you might say, well, that was a little harsh, That was a little extreme, but at the end of the day, the person did what was well within their legal right to do, and I see nothing wrong with their action. I mean, think about if somebody owed you $5,000, would you not go to small claims court if you had a legal right to it? Would you not sue them if you could get the money? I mean, this person is doing something that is well within their right to do. And so apart from Act 1, Act 2 seems like this is a perfectly appropriate and normal thing. But when we put it beside Act 2, I think all of us are convinced something's wrong here, isn't it? We might be now thinking of this person that they are an ungrateful jerk, an uncaring person, a callous individual. How could they experience something like that and then turn around and act and treat other people in this way? In fact, I think by this point, most of us should feel like Um, like David did when Nathan told him, remember that parable about the one king that had all these sheep and then his neighbor only had one sheep and he went and he took that sheep and then everybody's like, man, that's terrible. And that's how we are to feel at the end of act two. So then we move on to act three. When his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. We can and we do and we should speak of forgiveness as a debt being released. But one of the things I think is important for us to realize that every time there is a debt that is released, there is also another, a new debt or a new obligation that is created. Forgiveness creates new obligations. Now the first debt is one that is legal and external, but the other debt is internal and is not legally enforceable. But this man has encountered something that makes everybody around them say, you owe something better to the king and you owe something better to your fellow slaves. I listened to an interview this week where a woman talked about her foster mother who's now deceased and she was going on and on about all the great things that her foster mother did and she said, I owe it to my mother to continue to tell the stories of what she did. Do you see the debt language in there? Even when somebody releases us from an external debt, we recognize and realize we are in a new way indebted to that person by our conduct, by our behavior, and by how we treat them. And it's the other slaves who look at this and say, something's wrong here. Something is amiss that that could happen to you and you not be changed in the process. 
See, forgiveness creates a new sense of indebtedness, and it comes with explicit expectations. The man who is forgiven is expected to behave in a new way, and it's disappointing and it's surprising when he doesn't. So here's what we need to know doesn't happen. What doesn't happen is this kind of hippy-dippy, lovey-dovey reaction. Like, um, well, you know, the king, he's always saying, make love, not war. Or, you know, the king's saying, hey, well, you do whatever you want to do. I mean, I'm forgiving you, and you just act and behave however you want. The, the king's not saying, hey, don't, don't talk to anyone, don't challenge anyone, don't confront anyone. Just be really, really nice, because we all know that the king doesn't care how people act or behave, and if they do misbehave, he's just going to forgive them anyways. Is that how this parable is going? Is that what's happening? And if you think that's what's happening, let's read the fourth act, because it's going to give us the final picture here. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay the entire debt. Act four, we now find, is oozing with confusing irony. So far, we would say this is a parable about an an uber-generous, uber-merciful, highly kind king, and all of a sudden, in a moment, that switches. In fact, it switches so quickly that it's very perplexing for some people, and they don't know what to do with it. There's an author named Bernard Scott who says of this, can we really speak of lavish forgiveness if it can be easily retracted by a first failure? Is it really generous mercy if once have been forgiven, it can be so quickly withdrawn? Can't you identify with his confusion? Is this a story about a forgiving and merciful king? Or is this story about a king who demands justice and has expectations and punishes when that's not met? And I think for those of us who have been Christians long enough, we know that the answer, it it is about both. And God is both simultaneously. But in our minds, it's hard to see those two things fitting together, isn't it? I remember the first time I was traveling with my uh, in-laws and we decided that we'd pick up a pizza at a grocery store to put in the oven and we got pizza. We're heading towards the cash register and my mother-in-law says, we forgot the mustard. I said, Ruth, we're eating pizza. And she said, mustard and pizza goes great together. I did not try it that day. I have never tried it. And in my mind, it still doesn't make sense that you would put mustard and pizza together. And in the very same way, I have that same sort of reaction whenever somebody says, we're going to take this high justice, high, high demanding God, and we're also going to describe him as a God who is high mercy and high forgiving. We struggle sometimes how to see God as those things simultaneously. And despite how much we struggle to see him in such a way, the parable clearly predict, uh, portrays God as such. The Christian community needs to learn to embrace these two truths of God. But I want to talk for a minute about two ways that this parable specifically addresses us as a Christian community. And the first is this. God's mercy, which is specifically expressed in forgiveness, is a core Christian community value. Look at the language in verse 33. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? What the New Revised Standard translates as should you is actually probably something that should be translated with much stronger 
language. It's the Greek word day. In fact, the first time we find it in Matthew is in Matthew 16, uh, verse 21. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, day, go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering. Every time Jesus talks about, uh, okay, I didn't fact check this. I will say the majority, and I'm going to guess it's every time. When Jesus in the gospel talks about going to Jerusalem, he will use this word day. It is my responsibility. It is my obligation. It's something I must do. And so that same word is used of forgiving one another, this notion that we must forgive each other. In fact, there's a statement in 1835 that summarizes the parable. It says, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister in your heart. We've had some parables Jesus teaches where essentially he says, go and do likewise. This is another one of those go and don't do likewise, which is don't be the kind of a person who withholds forgiveness. Somebody's going to object. They're going to say, whoa, 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 are you, are you telling me, Craig, that the way we get into the kingdom is by forgiving people? No, that's not what this parable is saying. When Jesus talks about forgive, uh, forgiveness, he's not speaking about it as a condition of entrance into the kingdom, but instead forgiveness is more like a litmus test that one is already in the kingdom. It becomes a fruitful expression of the reality that one's in the kingdom. Kingdom people live and act and behave in certain ways. So how does this happen and how is it possible? It's because of this concept of personal transformative experience. There are certain things in life you cannot go through and not be changed in the process. Experiencing the loving forgiveness of God is intended to be one of those transformative experiences that you never go back from. So this is not saying we should try to be a forgiving people, this is not saying you need to work hard at being forgiving people. You need to learn how to be forgiving people. It says when you have experienced God's forgiveness, you will be changed. And you will at the end of it just simply say, I am a different person. I think about it in the context of war. Those who go off to the war come back and they say what? I'm different now. Did they decide to be different? Did they choose to be different? Did they work hard at being different? Did they commit to learn how to be different? No, the experience itself made them different. The key to this parable is rooted in one's recognition of what the master has done in their lives. That becomes the transformative experience. And we then, having experienced that, will become a people who are forgiving. I think of it in this way. It's, it's, it's a lesser example, but it's still a great example, and it's a human one. I, I, I remember witnessing once a wife forgiving her husband for his infidelity. And it was almost as if time had stopped and I knew that would be a significant moment in my life because now anytime people wrong me and ask for my forgiveness, I will often replay that conversation in my head and I will say to myself, if she could do that, then I can do this. And that's the point of this parable. As we reflect on what God has done in our lives, we say what? If he could do that, then I can do this. But we recognize also that forgiveness has implicit expectations and demands. If the king is characterized by his merciful forgiveness, then his citizens should be also. A kingdom participant will be one who has the same values as the king. They will live in a way that is consistent with the values of the king and the values of his kingdom. So here's a way that we could understand or illustrate this. Imagine that I were a member of a group called the Alley Cat Allies, which actually exists. Um, their mission is to care for 
stray and homebound cats and kittens. And let's say I'm a part of this group, and I go to the group one day, and I say, you know what, guys? My stupid cat was doing this and that, and so I kicked that cat to make it know what it should do. What is the likelihood that I'm going to continue to be welcome as a member of the Alley Cat Allies? No, because I'm behaving in a way that's inconsistent with what's at the core of this community of people. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that forgiveness is something that actually comes with expectations. We often talk about forgiveness in the past tense. We'll say forgive and forget, and maybe you should forgive and forget. But one of the things that we need to remember is if you are forgiven, it should be forgiven and don't forget. Forgiven and always remember that you are forgiven. That somebody has taken that great debt in your life and they have released it. And as a result of that forgiveness, God says, there is a way I want you to conduct yourself. There is a way I want you to live. I want you to live in a way that's consistent with these kingdom values. And the only way that's possible to do that is when we remember and we constantly reflect on how much we've been forgiven of. I think it's like, do you think it's just happenstance or by chance that every Sunday we partake of the Lord's Supper? I mean, do we just do that because we can't think of anything better to fill the time? I and mean, we've got to be an hour. It's not scriptural. It's not an hour. So let's go ahead and do something. No. We are reminding ourselves of what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're reminding ourselves of the gift of life through the forgiveness that was offered. And as we reflect on the forgiveness we've received, we are to be convicted that we, too, are to live as a forgiving people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And if this seems overwhelming, if this seems like the kind of thing that you 